a real treat this morning. Our speaker is Dan Bruner. Dan Bruner is a teacher and teaches Christian history, spiritual formation, and Christian earthkeeping at George Fox Evangelical Seminary in Portland, Oregon. He's also been a pastor since 1990 and participated in a church plant in Hillsboro, Oregon for 10 years. He has two children and an almost two-and-a-half-year-old granddaughter who is the light of his life. He loves reading, coffee, gardening, Oregon Ducks college football, movies, and I put this one last just to keep in mind that you need to encourage him. He is an avid Seattle Mariners fan. So tough summer for Dan. Anyway, we are glad that he's here. Would you welcome him to our stage? And I, I was an Oregon Ducks fan before they were good, so I, you never, never give up. Um, it is an honor to be invited uh, to bring this morning's message here at Journey Church. Um, I have so much respect uh, for what God is doing through you here in Bozeman and uh, for how you are doing it. And I do pray that God continues to empower all of you uh, for the journey that lies ahead of you. As Derry mentioned, I am a church historian, and the more I learn about church history, the more I am faced with a dilemma. And I am also a pastor, and the more I learn about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, the more I am faced with the same dilemma. Now, my dilemma is this. On the one hand, there have been remarkable things done over the centuries in the name of Jesus Christ. We could talk about it every Sunday for years and not exhaust the stories of what God has done. People like Catherine of Siena, who risked her life in the Middle Ages fighting the horrors of the Black Death. Lord Shaftesbury, who fought hard for the, for the poor in the 19th century. When, when he died at his funeral, hundreds of thousands of the poor in London lined the streets with their hats off in the pouring rain to honor this man. Sojourner Truth and Paul Brand and Toyohiko Kagawa, and that's to say nothing of the millions of unnamed Christians who left this world a better place because of what Jesus Christ had done in their lives. However, and this is the dilemma, many of us know only too well the pain that has been inflicted over the centuries and the harm that has been done in the name of Christ. The Crusades, pro-slavery propaganda, colonialism, anti-science attacks on Galileo, the oppression of women, and more. But it isn't just the church. When you think about individual Christians, some have been made better by their faith, but others seem to have been made worse. For every gracious and compassionate Christian you run into, there seems to be a mean-spirited, judgmental one. Some politicians claim that their nastiest letters come from people who quote the Bible and claim to speak on God's behalf. One author has written a book called When Bad Christians Happen to Good People. It is a dilemma. There just seems to be a breach 
between Christianity as it should be, both in our churches and in our lives, and how it really is between what we believe in theory and how we practice. It is this breach that I want to address this morning, this split between who we are when we come to worship on Sundays and who we are when we live our lives on Mondays. This is ultimately a question of discipleship and how we live our average, normal, 24-7 lives. So as we dig into this vital issue, please join me for a word of prayer. Loving God, I commit this message to you and to your glory, and I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts may be acceptable to you, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Through Christ we pray. Amen. I want us to look at a powerful episode from the ministry of Jesus this morning. It is in Mark chapter 5, if you've brought your Bibles with you, and I want to set the scene for you. Jesus has crossed the sea in a boat, and as soon as he lands, a large crowd gathers around him, and an influential man named Jairus falls at Jesus' feet and asks him to come and to heal his daughter, who is dying. And Jesus agrees to go with him. And then in verse 24 we read, a large crowd followed and pressed around him. Always take note of that word crowd when you see it in the Gospel of Mark. It's used 38 times. In almost every one of those uses, it refers to this mass of people, the poor and the outcasts, the disempowered and the marginalized, the sick, the broken, the forgotten. Everywhere that Jesus went, it seemed that these crowds would follow him. And notice how the text says they pressed in on him. There was just everywhere he turned, there were people, masses of people wanting something from him. Now, to get a picture of what Mark meant by this crowd, I want to take you to Bujumburo, Burundi in Africa. I went to uh, Burundi three years ago with my best friend Scott to to, uh, teach in a seminary there. And downtown Bujumburo, there's an open-air market with a, a roof and walls there a roof with no walls, and then dozens of buses and taxis, people just everywhere. As you enter the market, you see row after row of kiosks and booths, and they're selling everything, shoes and belts, coffee, tea, mangoes, bananas, fabric, clothing. The aisles are jammed with bumper-to-bumper people. You are constantly getting pushed and shoved. You stand out clearly as the only white person it feels forever. And instinctively, probably selfishly, you reach down and you grab onto your wallet to make sure it's still there. And then there are the delivery people carrying these massive loads on their heads. And they kind of lower their head and they walk down the aisle. And if you hear them whistling, you know to get out of their way because that's their way of of honking. When Mark talks about the crowds that pressed in on Jesus, I think of that market in Bujumbura. Now, in this mass of people that is just crowding around Jesus, there's an unnamed woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. 
This woman basically had an extended menstrual period. In the Old Testament, in Leviticus chapter 15, we learn that when a, when a woman was menstruating, she was considered unclean. And not only was the woman unclean, but everything she might touch during her period was also made unclean. Beds, clothing, chairs, utensils, even other people. These women, all throughout the Old Testament, during their menstrual cycle, would sleep outside the home. So for 12 years, this woman in our story had been considered unclean. She poisoned everything she touched. And so she had been cut off from her community, abandoned by her family and her friends. She was just one of the crowd, forgotten. Now to complicate this matters, to complicate matters, this woman in Mark 5 had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors. These doctors weren't bound by any Hippocratic oath to do no harm. No, these doctors had bled this woman dry financially and exploited her, and the text tells us she grew worse because of them. Desperate, cut off from society, abused by the medical profession, and suffering, this courageous woman reaches out from the crowd and touches Jesus' cloak. Immediately, the power emanating from Jesus sets her free from her physical suffering. Now, here the story gets interesting. Jesus is aware that power has gone out from him. And he stops right in the middle of the crowd, and he asks, who touched my clothes? His disciples are aware that such a search would be futile, because the crowd, this mob of people, is just everywhere, But Jesus keeps looking. Jesus keeps looking. Now let's stop here for a second. What must have been going through the mind of that woman as she kept looking, as Jesus kept looking for her? She knew the rules of the game. She knew that she, an unclean, impure woman, had touched a clean, pure, holy man. In fact, she had touched a rabbi. And when she touched him, he, Jesus, had been made unclean. It's no wonder that she came forward trembling with fear, the text says. Bravely, she told him the whole truth. Because of what the woman had done, because she had touched a man while she was bleeding, she could have been punished severely and even stoned to death. So why did Jesus do it? If this woman was already healed, if he had felt power go out from him, why did he make her go public? Why did he make her come forward when she wasn't bleeding anymore? Perhaps he just wanted to bring to light her courageous faith. But when Jesus said, go in peace and be freed from your suffering, He was not just referring to her physical suffering. He was also talking to everyone else who was listening. He was talking to the crowd. And he wanted them to know that this unclean, marginalized woman, whom they had rejected and mistreated for the last 12 years, she was healed and she was clean. It was time to welcome her back into community. 
You see, Jesus wasn't just concerned with healing this woman's physical body. This healing took place at at least three levels. Yes, he stopped the bleeding. But secondly, he also made sure that she was restored back into community with family and friends. And thirdly, she was healed spiritually. Her faith not only made her well, but it also became an example for everyone who was watching, including an influential man named Jairus, whose daughter was dying. And Jesus wasn't concerned with just healing the woman. He wanted to change the the system that kept this woman poor. He was always confronting the religious leaders about how their system had kept the poor poor and had kept the excluded excluded. That's certainly part of why he made her go public. Rather than condemn her for her uncleanness, rather than condemn her for touching him, he wanted to empower her in the face of an oppressive system. When we read the Gospels to learn about Jesus, we often miss the fact that he was deeply concerned for the whole person, not just that person's physical healing. And so we often have trouble seeing that Jesus is concerned with every aspect of our lives, physical, spiritual, relational, intellectual. And we also have trouble seeing that Christ is invested, he he is as invested in our everyday lives as Christ is invested in our lives when we are hurting and broken. Friends, the problem that I want to address this morning is that most of us are able to live our everyday lives without Christ. It's only when things go wrong that we begin to cry out and ask God to come into our lives. Otherwise, we do quite well on our own. While Dietrich Bonhoeffer was in prison in 1945, waiting for what would eventually be his martyrdom, he wrote letters that were smuggled out of prison. In one of those letters, he wrote about the God of the gaps. He feared that Christians were using God only when they ran out of their own resources. Christians would call on this God of the gaps when they needed him. Otherwise, God was left on the edges of their lives. Bonhoeffer believed that God wanted to be at the center of people's whole lives, whether things were going well or things were going badly. Uh, When you're traveling on the underground in London, I know some of you have done this, and as you're getting on and off the train, you will hear a recorded voice going over and over, mind the gap, mind the gap. There's a gap between the train and the platform, and the Brits want to remind us relentlessly to mind it. It seems to me that those who claim to follow Jesus Christ, we need to mind the gap. The gap that calls on God only when we're desperate, and the gap that sees God only interested in our spiritual lives and not in our whole lives. What we're talking about this morning is very important to me. It's also very, very personal. So let me tell you about another courageous woman and her story of healing and how she reached out to touch the cloak of Jesus. In 1995, we learned that my wife, Signe, um, had brain cancer. 
It was a large malignant tumor called an oligodendroglioma. Because the tumor was inoperable, uh, my wife wound up, wound up going through, th- through three separate year-long treatments of intensive chemotherapy at Oregon Health and Sciences University. Plus, she did another lengthy treatment of radiation. She died in 2009 after a 13-and-a-half-year battle. In fact, last night, she and I would have been celebrating our 34th anniversary. But even if I, st- if I, but if I stopped here, if that's all I told you, I wouldn't be telling you the whole story. Signe's long-term uh, struggle with cancer wound up teaching her and me and those who knew and loved us a great deal about healing. It is not possible for me to tell you all the people who prayed for Signe over the years. I would even get emails from people on the other side of the world who had heard the story and were praying for her. In the early years, we would have monthly prayer meetings where we would lay hands on Signe and anoint her with oil and plead with God to heal her. We even, believe it or not, went to a Benny, a Benny Hinn Expect a Miracle crusade, hoping for a miracle of healing. Signe's cancer was a constant presence in my life. Without a doubt, the most frequent question that I was asked was, how is Signe? In asking that, people usually meant, how is Signe doing physically? Was she being healed? And instinctively, I knew that that was what they were asking. And so I would answer, well, she's in the middle of a lengthy chemotherapy or the tumor's in remission these days, etc., Isn't it interesting that when people would ask me, how is Signe, I usually did not say, well, her cancer hasn't gone away, and and she still has a brain tumor, but she has never been healthier. What is amazing is that too often I thought that God was choosing not to answer our prayers for Signe's healing because she was never cured of her brain cancer. But the truth is, that God was indeed answering our prayers. In fact, I can honestly say, having lived with Signe for over three decades, that when she died, she was one of the healthiest people I have ever known. Even though cancer and its many treatments had left her body broken. She died having done her work. She died having loved to the end. She died allowing herself to be loved. Signe called cancer her greatest teacher. And she could even state that she was grateful for her cancer and for how God had used that illness to create her into the woman that she was. She came to peace with that illness. It taught her to value the things that really matter, like her children and her marriage and her deep friendships. It taught her to come every day in dependence upon God. It taught her how to live, how to squeeze every drop of life out of living. When Jesus healed the woman with the flow of blood, he not only cured her physically, but he healed her relationship with her community, and he gave her a strong sense of who God had created her to be. Jesus healed Signe too, just not in the way that I was looking for. The whole experience has taught me that there are miracles almost every day if I will just open my eyes and see. 
One of the reasons that we have difficulty seeing ourselves as whole people, mind, heart, body, spirit, is that we live in such a professional and compartmentalized world. We go to a trainer to get our bodies in shape. We go to a therapist to work on important relationships. We go to brilliant and always humble professors to stretch our minds. And then we go to pastors and to churches to work on spiritual things. The problem isn't going to professionals. I am one for heaven's sake. The problem is that the only space we expect to encounter God is the spiritual space, the church. We have trouble believing that God is interested in all the other aspects of our lives. Now, this is very hard and challenging stuff. The church has wrestled with this for centuries. In the first century after Jesus of Nazareth, there was a movement called Gnosticism. Now, this is your brief church history lesson. Stay awake, it's good for you. Gnosticism said that only the spiritual is truly good. Everything physical, everything material, everything related to the body is evil. It isn't good. And the goal of life, then, is to discipline the body in order to let the spiritual come out. But Christianity said, no. Everything that God has created, mind, body, heart, spirit, everything is good. In fact, the Scripture says, everything is very good. It would seem today that the church has Gnostics running all over. We think that the only thing that is really good is the spiritual and that everything else is secondary and even unimportant to God. We must develop a healthy understanding that God has created everything, including our body, including, if I may risk it, God has created our sexuality, and it has been created good, very good. Now, I want to illustrate this compartmentalized world and the effect that it has on us. Imagine your life is, is, is a box, and inside this box are all the things that you have as priorities in your life. This could be a lot of things, family, job, personal health, exercise, friendships, your involvement at church, recreation, and let's say in this box is your personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Now the reality for people in our world today is that our lives have become compartmentalized Each one of those priorities in our lives is its own compartment. In other words, seldom do any of these compartments in our lives ever interact with each other. But there is only limited space in this box. And so each compartment affects the other compartments. To pour ourselves into one arena of life or into one compartment inevitably means that another compartment is going to get squeezed. For example, when I'm really busy teaching with new classes to prepare or tons of papers to correct, I often find it very difficult to find time to work out, and my personal health suffers. Clearly, I've been grading a lot of papers. (laughs) Or we realize that we haven't spent enough time with our families, so we spend more time with them, which is great until we want to spend a night out with friends. And sometimes we begin to work on our spiritual lives and we get engaged in Bible study and prayer and we connect with other Christians and we strive to serve those who have been forgotten by society and our spiritual life just seems to blossom and to take off. 
though it almost always seems to be at the expense of something else. Family, friends, work, recreation. The real problem with this compartmentalization is that our relationship with Jesus Christ is in its own little box and has nothing to do with the other compartments. It might become larger, but it still has little to do with our everyday life, our work, our families, our personal health, our friendships, our recreation. We have trouble imagining Jesus even cares about those things. St. Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul visualizes that his life in the body, in the body, is lived by faith in the Son of God. It is this in the body part that seems to be so tough. And the more I talk with people engaged in real life, the more I realize how difficult this problem is. How do we bridge the gap between who we are here on Sunday mornings and how we live our lives on Mondays? I believe it is possible. It is ultimately what this message is about, a Christ-centered life. And by Christ-centered, I mean how Christ can impact our normal, everyday, Monday through Saturday existence. It does us no good to see Christ in his own little box or to see Christ as an add-on to our lives. When our faith is only something that we bring out when we're doing church stuff or going to church things, then it isn't really the faith that God calls us to. The reality of our faith is much more demonstrated in how we live our everyday lives than it is in what we do at church. So how? How do we do it? How do we do it? So, this next part of the message is my theological part. Now, I have done the historical part. You all survived it. And... Most of you are still awake. Now we're going to the theological part. It's okay to fall asleep. And then I'm going to come to the practical part, and then you'll all want to come back here. So this happens to me in class all the time. I'm used to it. Um, I won't be offended. Just don't snore. A lot of Christians, here's your theology, a lot of Christians, and it doesn't matter if you're Protestant, Catholic, or something else, a lot of Christians think that their relationship with God through Jesus Christ, is based on whether or not they've sinned or on how many times they've sinned. Now let me explain this. This is not for you at Journey Church because I know this has all been explained to you, but this is for other people out there. Anyway, you go to church on a weekend, and we hear the good news of how God has forgiven us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we ask God to forgive us for our sins from the previous week, and we accept God's forgiveness into our lives. The preaching and the whole worship experience that it pumps us up, we're inspired to go out into the world, we feel like we're close to Jesus, that we're in a strong relationship with him. And then sometime during the week, we fail, we sin, we say something or do something or we don't do something that hurts another person, maybe even someone that we love. 
Now, for some of you, you are actually probably going to start sinning on the drive home this morning. Others of you, it might be Monday. Those of you who are really spiritual, it might be Tuesday. For me, it's usually Friday or Saturday. (laughs) Now, here's the problem. We think that when we sin, our relationship with God is broken. And that we have to go back to church to get forgiven. We think that, we think that sin takes us out of relationship with God, and that we need to be forgiven, usually at a worship service, in order to get back into relationship with God. Uh, to be honest with you, that is really lousy theology. We don't ask God for forgiveness in order to get back into relationship with God. We ask God for forgiveness because we are in relationship with God. Don't get me wrong. I'm not telling you that sin is okay or that you should go out and sin boldly. But my guess is if you're anything like me, you will sin. And here's the point. Sin doesn't take you out of relationship with God. Sin reminds you that you need God in your life every moment of every day. You see, this is an awareness problem. Even after we've sinned, even after the inspiration of the weekend services has worn off, we are still in relationship with Christ. When you invite Christ into your life, He doesn't up and leave you at the first sign of failure. Christ is much more faithful than we can ever imagine. He is always with us, even to the end of the age. But too often, we simply forget Believe it or not, one of the most important aspects of living the Christian life, of daily discipleship with Christ, is nothing more than awareness. More important than any of your spiritual successes or more important than any of the things that we do or fail to do is learning to become aware of God's constant 24-7, 365 presence in our life. So this morning, end of theology, starting the practical. Come back, wake up, poke your neighbor. This is the practical part. Get out your papers, start writing this stuff down. You'll take this with you. I want to share with you four things that you can do to develop an awareness of God's presence in your life. I've put them conveniently into the acronym STOP. So you can make them easy to remember. I know this is going to sound goofy. I know this is going to sound childish. Let me just tell you, I teach a class in the spiritual life at the seminary. This is one of the disciplines that we teach. And this is one that students make use of almost as much as any other that we talk about. I use it constantly. Even if it sounds goofy. First, S, slow down and simplify. One of the most important things for getting started in the life of following Jesus is learning to simplify our lives and to slow down. The journey with Christ doesn't start by adding a bunch of new things into our lives, as good as they may may be. It begins with slowing down and simplifying by taking things out of our lives. I want to give you a couple of little funny suggestions. Try getting intentionally into the longest line in the grocery store. And then becoming aware of the, the, with the slowest checker. And then become aware of the people around you as you stand in line. This one's hard for me 
Because I usually not only get into the shortest line, but I watch the line I would have gotten into to see if I... Another suggestion that I actually do, do, actually do in my life is to drive in the slow lane on the freeway. Believe it or not, um, but this, I, I, I practice this much to the chagrin of my full-throttle daughter. Uh, she just screams at me from the passenger seat. You know, oh, you are so old. You're driving like a grandparent, like a raisin. And uh, <laughs> that is what she says. Um, it's crazy what an effect it's had on me, though. I have discovered the freedom of the slow lane. I'm amazed at the number of students at the seminary who are genuinely tired of the pace of life that they find themselves in. I do a voluntary Bible study every Thursday morning at 7 o'clock at the seminary. Eight to 12 students come to it. Last year, we studied the Gospel of Mark. This year, do you know what they want to study? How do I simplify my life? How do I simplify my life? I'm tired. I'm tired of the pace. The journey with Christ starts with slowing down and with simplifying. Second, T, take a deep breath. Here we go. Let's practice. Take a deep breath. One more time. A deep, deep, slow breath. Now just listen to your body for a second. I want you to notice your shoulders, your neck, your back. Notice where the tension is. We carry immense amounts of stress in our bodies. And it's breaking us down. It is literally breaking us down. The next time you find yourself on the edge, life has you by the throat. Stop and slow down and take a deep breath. I can't tell you how many times over the last couple of years that grief and sadness and a sense of despair have gotten their grips onto me. I have learned through practice how vital and healing it is just to stop and to take a deep breath. I do it often. Third, oh, open your eyes. If you're like me, there are a ton of everyday opportunities in front of us, but we miss them because our eyes are not open and we're focusing on something else. For Father's Day this year, I drove up to Seattle with my son for a guy's weekend away. We went to a Mariners game and they lost. Uh, Now, I am a pretty big fan and I realized as I was driving to our, our hotel that I was kind of bummed out that the Mariners had lost. In fact, I was becoming grumpy. So that night as I was lying in bed, it hit me like a brick. Bruner, you just had the privilege of watching a baseball game with your son. Open your eyes. It isn't about the Mariners. And the next morning we sat for a couple of hours at a coffee shop and we just talked. And I kept my eyes open for every word that he said. And I tried to stay aware of the rare privilege of unpressured, simple time with my 30-year-old son. Fourth, P, pray. This last step is, is critical. After you've slowed down and taken a deep breath and opened your eyes to what's going around you, pray and simply invite God into that moment. 
Just say a simple prayer like, thanks, Lord, for being with me right here, right now. This is not the kind of prayer where you ask God to do something for you. This is not the kind of prayer where you ask anything about yourself at all. This is a prayer that simply makes you aware of what is already true, that God is with us in the mundane realities of everyday life. Learning to bring God, to become aware of God in those realities is what a Christ-centered life looks like. Friends, we live and we move and we have our being in the loving presence of a 24-7, 365 God. This God is already a part of our everyday lives, working to bring health and healing and wholeness. I invite you this week to stop and to become aware and to learn to see that there isn't a single aspect of your life. There isn't a single aspect of who you are that God doesn't care passionately about. Let's pray. Oh God, you are our constant, loving, forgiving, gracious presence in our lives. I pray this week you would give us those moments of grace where we simply see that you are with us. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Thanks, Dan, for challenging us this morning. Could I invite you just to set your things aside for a moment and bow your heads with me? Dan's given us a suggestion that we could use the word stop and build some practices into our life that give God space to work in every area of our life. And you could leave this morning having made that decision. Maybe your life is just a blur. It's out of focus. And you want to tell the Lord this morning that with His help, you'd like to apply those four principles of stop in your life. And you want to invite Him to empower you to do that. So let's just bow our heads for a moment. And we're going to pray in just a moment. But right where you're at, you can invite Him to participate with you in exercising those four disciplines this week. If you want to do that, you pray right now just as we wait. Our heads are bowed and nobody's looking around and we're not going to embarrass you at all. But just to honor the Lord, if he's been faithful to talk to you graciously this morning, if you're praying a prayer like that, you're inviting the Lord to be your partner, would you just lift your hand up and put it down? Say, Lord, I'm, I'm doing that in my life right now. Yeah, over here in my right. You've got a number of people here in the center, over here in the left, way, way over on my left. Father, we thank you that you are so gracious to us so interested in our welfare 
We pray for these who slip their hands up, that you'll rush grace to them in some tangible way. Show that you are partnering with them in the disciplines, in the exercise that they want to undertake this week. Be their aid and their guide and their help. In Jesus' name, amen. Just a moment, we're going to finish our worship this morning with some, some more singing. Uh, our ushers are going to come and receive uh, your tithes and offerings today. It's an expression of our love of the Lord and what He's doing in our lives and our desire to help other people. Along with that, we just want to remind ourselves that we have a team heading to Ethiopia in just a few days. They'll be pouring their lives out there in Ethiopia, and uh, they'll become the eyes and the hands and the feet of Jesus for those days that they're there. So as we pray for our giving, we want to pray for that team as well. So would you join me in that? Father, thank you for all the good things you bring into our lives. We're going to give a portion of that back, just as a declaration to the world of your faithfulness to us. And we think of those who are headed to Ethiopia. We pray that you'll give them protection, that you'll let them see fruit for their labor, that as they pour their lives out in the name of Christ, they'll see the impact of some of that and the, and the, how it changes people's lives. We pray that you'll give uh, some of the people there in Ethiopia uh, a receptive heart to receive the help that's going to come their way and that there will be a partnership around the redemptive purposes of Christ. In Jesus' name. Amen.